3.13, the baptism of Jesus. Okay, why don't we stand together? Let's read Matthew 3, verse 13 to 17. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove up and lightning on him. And behold, a voice from out of the heavens and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Please be seated. Well, it's uh, hard to believe, but uh, today's the last sermon in the series on what is the gospel. And the reason, as we mentioned, is next week I'm on, uh, or next week's a combined service at the three churches, and we're all taking a turn preaching about 10 minutes each, and then I'm going on summer vacation. I'm not decided totally yet if I'm gonna return to this series after vacation. Uh, there's a few more things that could be said about the gospel, or if we could uh, just move on to a new series, but at least for now, we're taking a month break. But as you notice by the title this morning, uh, we're going to end by talking about the good news in terms of Jesus' offer for our new identity. In Jesus Christ, he offers you a new identity. Now, my plan wasn't to end on this. My plan actually was to speak about this at a later date. However, in light of last week's sermon, and the things that followed from there in terms of conversations, and in light of what Laurel presented today, I thought today would be an appropriate day to speak about our identity in Christ, since that's what we're trying to impart and will impart to our children. Now, if you remember, this all got birthed out of last week's message about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, and how Satan, in his attempt to make Jesus sin, went after Jesus' identity and purpose that the Father had declared about him at his baptism. And you remember also how he gained victory over the devil. What he did was he fought him by quoting scripture in context. He declared God's truth as a means of defeating his temptations and lies. And so as a result, we were trained last week by God's word so that we have to announce the lies and temptations of the devil and to declare his truth about us, or God's truth about us, I should say. Now, as I walked away from that message last week, I realized as your pastor, I don't do this enough in my own way. And after talking to some of you last week, you felt that you were in the same boat as I. This is something that we know intellectually, but probably have never applied to the degree that the Lord wants us to. And Satan does the same thing with us, or with Jesus, he does the same thing with us. That's why this is so important. He attacks our identity. He attacks our purposes. And so if you ever have phrases going through your head like, well, if you were only a Christian, you would blank. Or if you, you don't really measure up, you know that, right? Or does God really love you? Do you have any importance? Does your life matter? Do you even belong? And so it's really important, family, because the reality is, while not all of us may struggle with those questions or in those ways, a good majority of us in here do. 
and we have given the Satan too much groundwork. He's taken too much ground over our lives. And we've lost the voice of the Lord in terms of how he defines us and who he sees us to be. So this message this morning is intended to take back the ground that the Satan has stolen and how to gain victory the way Christ did. So my prayer for this message is by the end, you are filled with a renewed sense of significance, a new sense of value, a new sense of belonging, and a new sense of hope and love. To set you free from the lies and insecurities and learn to walk in freedom. So we're going to start with Jesus of baptism. Now I realize it's a repeat in many ways of last week's message, because I spoke a lot about this last week. But if you're anything like me, repetition won't hurt you. Proof and pudding was come up here and preach the sermon I did last week. You'd be like, oh, right? We forget the things of the Lord. So let's review and um, the same things we kind of learned last week, add to it, and then finish with how this applies to our lives. So, at the baptism of Jesus, Matthew records three voices that spoke that day. Three voices spoke. Jesus, or John to Jesus as he shows up at the water. Jesus to John the Baptist as he's going into the water. And the Father about Jesus coming out of the water. Three voices. So let's look at John's message to Jesus. Verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee of the Jordan, coming to John, to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? The first thing you need to notice here is that when Jesus comes to John and asks to be baptized, John protests. Now, when you understand the message of John the Baptist and what he'd come for, you can see why he was so adamant that he was not to baptize Jesus. I want you to look at chapter 3 and verse 2. It says when, actually start at verse 1, 3, 1. Now in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Look at verse 6. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. So what do you learn about John the Baptist's message? It's one of repentance and one of confession for sin. John the Baptist, later on, we know from the book of John, made this claim when Jesus showed up in his presence. Look, my disciples, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You can see why he protests. What does Jesus need to confess? If he's the one that takes away the sins of the world, what is it that he needs to repent of if he's the Lamb of God? The answer is nothing. 
So you understand that why John says, why do you want me to do this? In fact, it should be flipped around. I do have sin in my life. You should be baptizing me. There's no need to stand in line with all those sinners, Jesus. You've come to take that away, not to stand in line and be baptized you know, confess your sins. Which leads us to the second voice in verse 15. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now we're going to come back to Jesus' response after looking at the third voice, which is the Father's. Because only in that context can you understand the nature of these words. So moving to the Father then, Let's look at the Father's words as Jesus comes out of the water in verse 16. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God ascending as a dove and lightning on him. And behold, a voice came out of the heavens and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Remember from last week that the Father's declaration came from two Old Testament prophecies. It came from Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7, in which he said, You are my son, today I have become your father. In Isaiah 42, 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. So the Father's words to the Christ, his son, were a fulfillment of two Old Testament prophecies. So let's read Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, he rebukes them, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. The context of Psalm 2. The nations are in rebellion against the Lord. And the Lord, through the psalm, the psalmist says, there's going to be one day in which the nations who are rebelling against God are going to be subdued and given um, rule to God's Son. God's Son is the one who's going to inherit the nations and rule over them. The question in Israel was always, who is the Son? Who is the Son? We're waiting for the Son. And the Father proclaims at the baptism, this is the one. He is the one who is a fulfillment of Psalm 2. The question, though, is how is he going to inherit the nations? Is it going to be through might, through, through military conquest, through a dictatorship? How is he going to inherit the nations? Well, Isaiah 42 answers this. In Isaiah 42, he says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. And so in Isaiah 42, it's the first of four servant psalms. The word servant occurs, about God's servant occurs four times in these four places in Isaiah. In Isaiah 42, he's defined as a servant, but he's also going to receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And at the baptism, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes upon him like a dove, another indication of a fulfillment of Isaiah 42. Isaiah 53, in terms of being a servant, is one who would suffer 
for the nations. And that's why Jesus, understanding his mission and purpose for coming, makes a declaration in Matthew 20, 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The understanding of being a servant to Jesus was to lay his life down at the cross. So again, the Father's voice is a public declaration that Jesus was the one they were waiting for. He was the king who had come to rule the nations, but he would inherit the nations through the laying down of his life. A fulfillment of the prophecy made about 1,000 years earlier by the Psalms. With this in mind now, let's look at Jesus' words. Again, he said, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It's fitting, us, fitting for us to fulfill what God has intended. Jesus knew who he was. He knew he was God's son. He knew that he was to inherit the nations. He knew his mission, that the nations would be won, not through domination, but through suffering and laying down his life for sinners. So Jesus needed to get baptized because it was a picture of him standing with sinners, identifying with sinners as they went into the water and were coming out. And he says, I'm identifying you with sin and also coming out in victory. This picture of baptism is a picture of what I'm going to do and I'm identifying with you. So it's like Jesus was saying this, I know what this water is about. It's people in the need of forgiveness. It's about people in the need of saving. And it's about people being forgiven and renewed to new life. And I'm the only one that can take care of that. This is just my thoughts. If you want to push back into the dialogue or whatever, I won't fight one bit. I'll lay down and put my legs in there like a puppy. But, because uh, the word doesn't speak to this. But just as I was thinking about this, I wonder if this is why, with the Father's declaration about who Jesus was publicly, and through confirmation of the scriptures, that's key, public declaration, confirmation of identity and purpose through the scriptures, as to why Jesus was able to face the temptations that he was and not take shortcuts in ministry. I believe the Father's declaration over his life, using the Word of God, helped him face all sorts of adversity and rise triumphant because he knew who he was. The Father declared to him personally. Regardless of whether I'm right or wrong, Here's what I do know. The very words that were spoken to Jesus Christ about being beloved as a son and being well pleased with him are affirmed for you in the Holy Word of God. The same value, the same importance, the same significance, the same love, the same acceptance is given to you as well and is declared to you in the Scriptures. I want to start with one passage. Let's 
Look at the new identity you have in Christ when we receive him. You have taken off your old self with his practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of his creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarous, Scythian, slave or free, for Christ is all and is in all. What Paul is saying here is this. The previous ways in which people and yourself have chosen to identify no longer matter in Christ. It doesn't matter what your ethnic background is, whether you're you know, a Gentile or a Jew. It doesn't matter what your religious background is, circumcised or uncircumcised. It doesn't matter what your social status is, slave or free. It's irrelevant when you're in Christ. What I, I would like to add, edu your education makes no difference to God. Whether you have a master's or a dropout of high school, means nothing to him. Your wealth, whether you're in poverty or whether you're a millionaire, means nothing to him in terms of your identity. Your athletic prowess, whether you have two left feet in everything you do, or whether you're the star of your hockey team or your baseball team, it means nothing to giving you identity in the Lord. Your identity solely lies in the fact that Jesus Christ knows and loves you. Now I'm realizing this more than ever in my own life and how important this is as I get older, especially as we deal with as I deal with my own issues and I see you deal with yours. We've given a lot of ground to the devil in terms of determining our identity and purpose to the point that we don't even um, really believe often what we read in the scriptures about us. The result then is it's created a framework in which we think with a defeatist attitude. I don't measure up, I don't belong in this community, my life has no value, etc. And Satan has used um, the past hurts of our lives, our environment, our, the abuses we face, um, our culture, our religious experiences to further and cement the lies we've adopted. And to keep us in bondage, never living in the joy of the Lord or any sense of purpose. But as followers of Christ, we can be renewed in our minds. And Joel 2.25 has a really great verse. It says, The Lord will restore the years the locusts have eaten. I know that applies to Israel specifically, but I do believe it's a promise that we can bank on today as well. So the pathway to victory is of a proper understanding of who God is, and just as importantly, how He sees you. So what does the Word of God see, say about you? Well, Neil Anderson, he's famous for his um, deliverance uh, ministries. He says all human beings have three basic needs that they feel, or that needs that have to be met for a person to feel valued. And they're intrinsic, you can't turn them off. One is acceptance, one is security, and one is significance. And we're going to see today that Jesus Christ, in his word, provides all those things for you. So let's look at acceptance. Without a doubt, 
Rejection is one of the most painful experiences we can go through. Rejection is one of the most painful things. And it can lead to a lot of pain. I had an, uh, <clears throat> I had an experience when I was about, uh, well, between the ages of 5 to 10, prolific bullying up north with the native people, because I was the only Caucasian in the town. And we had three square meals a day, and so being um, provided for and um, having uh, different skin color, there was a lot of abuse. And then there was one particular day, uh, I'll never forget it, although God's been healing me of it. We were playing dodgeball in a community hall, and it was for phys ed. And uh, at that time I was not the best at dodgeball, but I wasn't the worst either, I was kind of middle of the road. And the ball was thrown randomly to start the game, and uh, when the ball was caught, I was way in the corner. Well, the uh, Inuit kids started passing the ball around until I was the first one out. And I thought, well, there's not much to that. I'll just suck it up and move on. Game ends, because I'm first out. You know, the game comes to an end. Second game, same thing. Ball goes around. I'm the first one out. Even though I'm the farthest away from it. Third game. Same thing happens. And by this time, I'd experienced three years of daily bullying, about three years in. So this was not the first time. I ran out of the community hall, and I stood like in the, in the playground of the, of the school, and like, I was in absolute tears because it was blatant rejection. The teachers never stood up for me. There was no recourse in terms of justice. And I made an oath publicly to the heavens. I said, from this day on, I will never ever be picked on again, and I will be the best at everything I do, so that I have value. I will, I will, the way to security, the way to significance, acceptance, all of these things, is to be the best at everything I do. I will never be rejected if that is the case. And from that day on, went to a crazy amount of pursuit to be the best that I could be in everything I did. Now, I've had to since break that oath on two or three occasions with the Lord. But here's the point. Rejection is painful. But it also leads to a lot of pain in other ways. When you have the attitude that I have, you easily feel threatened by others because every single person's competition to you. Because if anyone's better than you or remotely can threaten your, your sense of identity, you are going to challenge that. You'll do whatever it takes to make sure you rise to the top. The other problem, though, why it leads to pain is your identity easily crumbles when you don't feel accepted. You can't handle any criticism because any criticism just blows you up. Also, when you fail, as you get older, like I did, or like I am, when you fail to um, be as healthy or as strong or as fit or as smart or whatever it is, or as talented as you were when you were 19, and now you're 48, at least the depression. Because everything you care about that gave you value no longer can fulfill you. Thirdly, it can lead to pain because you can compromise yourself spiritually in terms of integrity, 
because you want the approval of others. So to be accepted, you'll compromise what you know about Jesus in this way, because acceptance by men and peers is more important than acceptance by the Lord. And so you compromise yourself spiritually. And so finally, the pain comes and it affects your relationship with God. Because any sin you do leads to condemnation. If I make a declaration, unless I'm the best at everything I can be, I'm not acceptable, what happens when I sin against the Lord? You can't accept me because I'm not worthy, because I didn't meet your standards of righteousness. You can understand the snowball effect of these things, right? But you see, we all have this desire for acceptance. So what does the Lord say about you and I? How does He view us? Well, His love is unconditional and voluntary. Just read these two passages with me. 1 Corinthians 6.17 But whoever is united with the Lord is one with Him in spirit. If you know the Lord, you're united with Him. You're accepted. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. This is awesome. You're the, your body belongs to the Lord. His Holy Spirit lives in you. That's a sign of acceptance, isn't it? If He's inside you, He's, he's, he's controlling your mind and your thoughts. Since they control him, he's part of your thoughts. So what do you do in a case like that? When a lie comes across the devil that says that you're or the lie comes from the devil, you're not accepted. You go back to James 4, you renounce and announce. So I renounce the lie. And I announce that I'm united with Jesus and with him in the spirit. In terms of acceptance in the second one, I renounce whatever the lie is, and then I announce that I have been bought with the price I belong to God. Isn't that what Satan, or, uh, Jesus did with the devil? Isn't that exactly what he did? He comes to him with Psalm 91 and says, you know what, if you do this and you do that, we'll find out if God loves you. And he says, yeah, remember what the Lord says about the situation you pulled through. So whatever lies you're facing about your acceptance, these are two passages as an example you could use to combat the devil. How about uh, the area of security? Security is a big one, right? Am I safe? Is everything going to be okay? Am I protected? All of these are natural emotions that you and I can't escape as human beings. But one of the keys to understanding security in terms of what the Lord thinks is to relate to Him in the eternal perspective and not the temporal. You relate to Him in the eternal perspective and not the temporal. If the focus in terms of security is always in the temporal, it will cause fear and insecurity. For example, if I put my hope in finances, and anything happens that threatens the financial stability of my life, I will go into lack of security and fear and panic. If I put my hope in my work and my career and I lose it, I will feel a tremendous sense of loss and feel completely unprotected and insecure. 
If I put another human being and it disappoints, I will be feel devalued, devalued, and be just down in the darkness. This is the way, these are the battles we have to fight. But the biblical truth is that we are secure in knowing Christ Jesus. That even if we had to face death, there is life beyond the grave. And again, because we put so much emphasis on the 70, 80, or 120 years we have here, we forget about life in the, in the eternity. We forget that Paul once said this in Philippians 1.21, in terms of the eternal perspective and being secure, for me to live is Christ, and to die is loss or gain. Why could he go through all the stuff he did? Because he knew he was safe and secure in the arms of the Lord. Whatever happened to him in this world, that there was eternity waiting for him, where there'll be no more pain, no more tears, and no more crying. And having that eternal perspective is cure key for feeling a sense of security. Therefore, if one's living for their career, their family, their fancy cars, to want to lose one's life and die would be a loss. But if you're living for the Lord Jesus Christ and the security He promises us, it's a gain. So let's look at one verse. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and 22. Now it is God who makes both of us, both us and you, stand firm in Christ. He anoints us, sets the seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. If you're having a sense of fear, like you're unprotected, like you're not important in those ways, that you're not ever safe, you renounce those lies and you announce that I have been established, anointed, and sealed with God. There's a promise of eternity waiting for you. And finally, what about significance? Every human has an intrinsic desire to feel that they are of value, don't they? We all want our lives to feel like they matter, that they're worth something to someone or something. All of us want to feel like we have purpose. All of us want to have a, make a lasting impact and feel that we have an impact on those around us, one that where our contributions matter and that we have a lasting impact on society or in our families. And so in many ways we try to get significance. We get it, again, through trying to get it through sports and performance in those ways, through arts, through the music, through a career, through uh, pursuing money, trying to be wealthy. We can even pursue love in all the wrong places. That's why people even join gangs and enter into bad relationships that they know are not good for them. They just want so badly to feel like they're significant, especially if they grew up in a family of rejection. The problem is that, as we know, all these things disappoint. Humans disappoint, uh, talents disappoint, and skills eventually fade. So we can find significance in the Lord in two profound ways. First, His immeasurable love for you. His immeasurable love for you. In Romans 5, it says that while we were helpless, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So listen to the, the, the resume you're given in Romans 5. 
They're called ungodly. They're called sinners. They're called an enemy. Those are the titles given to a person in Romans 5 before they know Jesus. He says, even while that was the case, he laid down his life for you because he loves you. He didn't wait for you to do anything or be anything before he laid his life down for you. Your value is purely because you have a, a spirit in you and you have a soul that has life and breath. Because you're a human being, that alone gives you value. You're one of God's creation and he laid his life down for you before you could, it didn't matter how many degrees you had, how good you were at hockey, it didn't matter a lick. You weren't even born when he laid his life down for you. So what could you possibly offer him? His love is immeasurable. The fact that he would go to the cross for the things that you and I have done is something that you and I just can't ever fathom and probably will never fathom until we get to heaven when the heavens and earth are restored and then we'll fully know when we're in his presence and what that new heaven and earth is like, what you really actually accomplished. Second though, is it gives you purpose and that he gives you a job to do. But sometimes we don't feel significant because we feel like we don't matter and we have no lasting impact. The Lord gives you and I a job. That's really cool. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 27, it says, Now that you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. 2 Corinthians 5.18, He has committed to us a message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. So look at the significance you have to the Lord. You are part of the body of Christ. Each of you has a part to play. Every single one of you sitting in this seat has a part to play in the body of Christ. Yeah, I get up here every Sunday, and so I kind of have a prominent, I have this prominent sort of position. But, I mean, after that, I mean, it's done. Every single one of you matters in terms of how this church functions and what happens in this community. And when you give your life to Jesus Christ, it gives you a spiritual gift to serve in the community. So that you can actually be part of it. That's why he says in the body analogy, a hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. What kind of a body would that be? I don't care if you're an eye, a foot, a hand, like whatever, an ear, you've all got a part to play. You have significance in this community. And you're also an ambassador of Christ. Ambassador means a promoter, a diplomat, or a representative. How you serve him as an ambassador and how you play your life out in the part of the body is really important. It actually has eternal value. That has eternal value to the Lord. Because you're using your life to honor him and use your gifts he's given you to honor him. How you use your finances, how you work, how you spread the gospel, all these things are the way in which you can be an ambassador. There's one really cool phrase I learned. You've probably heard it. It says, only one life, it will soon pass. Only what is done for Christ will last. So as we come to conclusion, I don't know if you noticed this, but I intentionally chose every single scripture verse in terms of acceptance, value, and significance in Corinth. All six passages were from Corinth. 
Why did I do that? Who is the worst church in the Bible? Corinth. Hands down, the worst church. Corinthian issues, chapters 1 through 4, divisions. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. This leader is more important than that leader, and I joined their ranks. In other words, they were seeking to get denominations. Uh, sex, incest, prostitution, singleness, marriage and divorce. Terrible issues in the Corinthian church. Food, going to the temple, still practicing and being sacrificed to idols, thinking that going to the temple and doing that wouldn't matter. Arguing, though, over whether you should buy meat sacrificed in the temples in the marketplaces. Church gatherings, neglecting one another. People were going hungry during communion services and they were fighting over the spiritual gifts. If you spoke in tongues in that church, you were a spiritually elite. And if you didn't speak in tongues, you weren't as important. Very contemporary today, actually. Resurrection. Some were denying that the resurrection never happened in Corinth. That's a heretical statement in the church of God. And the final greeting, helping them work this all out in love. Well, of course, you're not a loving community if you're fighting in these chapters over these issues. And yet, every verse I chose about acceptance, significance, and security was God's word publicly declared to the Corinthian church. Now, I will say there were warnings to the church. In other words, this is your last straw kind of thing. You better smarten up from here on in. Otherwise, God's going to come like a hammer on this church. But His grace is unending and just incredibly merciful as He watched the congregation struggle. And Paul never said to the church in Corinth in chapter 1, to the sinners in Corinth, let me open up what I have to do in terms of correction. To you people who don't measure up in Corinth, to those of you who don't belong to God in Corinth, the word was saint. And so what do we learn? Well, we see the same patterns in the Revelation church, the Galatian church, and the Ephesian church. The scriptures identify you and I as saints who sin, but not sinners. Once you know Jesus Christ, we are saints who sin, or have the potential to sin, but we're never defined as sinners. Someone might say, well, Andrew, that's pretty prideful. You better be careful of pride. Neil Anderson said it this way, you are not who you are in Christ because of the things you have done. You are in Christ because of what he has done. Those titles are given because of God's righteousness imparted to you and I. And out of love, we just respond and say, God, thank you for your mercy and for your care for us. And so I will walk in the truth of what you say about me and what you did for me and what you've got planned for me. 
Lord, we give you thanks for your word, how you teach us. These, these uh, passages we've read so many times, for those of us who've been Christians for a long time, we've, and we've probably just skipped by the words, because we think we know it already. But Lord, may this be a fresh outpouring of your spirit upon people, as they truly grasp what you have to say. Thank you for the model you gave us by declaring to the word of God your, your pleasure with Jesus, and what that meant. And Lord, may we walk in that as well as we, as we understand the pleasure you have in us, as hard as that is to hear and believe at times. That's not an excuse for us to continue in sin. As Paul said, if we sin more, because, you know, if, if it's about grace, should we sin more? And he said, may that never be. So we don't take advantage of you, Lord, but we just walk in the freedom that you do have for us. We just ask that the Holy Spirit would speak loud and clear to us. It is the, uh, an encouraging six weeks for the body of Christ. In Jesus' name.